everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. And as always, I'm joined in the studio by my brother and producer, Joel. Today, we are doing episode number 20, and we are going to be covering the absolutely horrific and tragic event of the Virginia Tech Massacre. This is an absolutely horrific event, and obviously, with any mass shooting, it's going to be very disturbing. The details are very disturbing in this one. And the main reason that I cover these is not to glorify the shooter by any means. That's the last thing I really want to do. I more so cover these events because I think a lot of times, you know, some of these horrible tragedies that happen throughout history just kind of get lost in history. And for the sake of the people who lost their lives, I think it's important to always remember them first and foremost. But I think it's important to look back on history and see, you know, what happened and is there any way that this could have been prevented? Is there anything about this horrible, horrible tragedy that we can avoid in the future? Maybe there's something we can learn from it. And also, this particular event happened in 2007. Now, in 2007, I was, let's see, I was in what, middle school? Because yeah, I or I was just about to enter high school. I think it was like eighth grade, ninth grade, uh, somewhere around there. So I don't really remember too much about the Virginia Tech massacre, uh, probably because I didn't watch the news all that much. And our parents definitely didn't watch the news. Uh, very often. So I think that's partly why we didn't really hear about it. But uh, it's one of those that I think is just important to always remember. And, you know, there's just really not a lot of information out there on YouTube, especially. And just, you know, there's not a lot of people talking about these things. And again, I find it very important that these events are never forgotten. And, you know, hopefully there's something to be learned. So the perpetrator of the Virginia Tech massacre was a man named Sung Hee Cho. And for the sake of not having to say Sung Hee Cho a million times throughout this, I'm just going to reference him as Cho. So Sung Hee Cho was born on January 18th, 1984 in Asan, South Korea. He lived in a basement apartment in Seoul with his parents and two siblings. His father owned a bookstore, but they didn't make a lot of money. So he decided he wanted to provide his children with better opportunities. From a young age, Cho's relatives were worried about him because he rarely talked and he didn't play with other kids. He would follow instructions from adults, but he avoided eye contact and didn't voluntarily greet or hug anyone. When Cho was eight years old, his family immigrated to the United States. They entered the United States through Brooklyn and then continued on to Centerville, Virginia, which is actually a suburb of Washington, D.C. And the reason why they moved to the suburb is because it has a large South Korean population. When they arrived there, his parents actually opened up a dry cleaning business and they joined a Christian church. Cho and his family became permanent U.S. residents as South Korean nationals in 1992. Now, Cho's parents raised their children Christian, but Cho hated the religion and was bullied by the rich kids that went there. Cho was always a shy, quiet kid who liked math and baseball. And after first moving to the U.S. around second grade, he would come home from school crying, saying he never wanted to go back. Once he was in about fifth grade and throughout junior high, classmates remember him being well-behaved, liked by teachers, and exceptionally smart. He seemed to get along well with boys and girls. But in the eighth grade, things took a turn. The school shooting at Columbine took place on April 20th, 1999, and Cho became absolutely obsessed with it. In fact, a classmate of Cho's actually saw, written on his binder, fuck you all, I hope you all burn in hell. 
And he also wrote about how he wanted to repeat Columbine in a school essay, which obviously was very alarming to his teacher. After this incident happened, his parents ended up taking Cho to a psychiatrist where the psychiatrist diagnosed him with social anxiety, major depressive disorder, and selective mutism. With selective mutism, a person loses the ability to speak when triggered or during certain situations. Cho continued therapy and took medication in order to help alleviate these issues up until his junior year of high school. He also attended speech therapy and was excused from doing oral presentations and oftentimes got additional support at school. Cho's parents also thought taking him to church more often would help. The selective mutism worried their pastor, and he told Cho's mother to take him to the hospital. It's worth noting that while some of Cho's relatives in South Korea and their pastor suspected he was autistic, a report of a diagnosis has never been released, and experts have largely dismissed this theory. And I would definitely consider that as well, based upon what we know about Cho and, you know, just based upon his childhood and the way that he acted, that he could definitely be on the spectrum, which, you know, they've kind of changed the way we talk about autism and everything like that. So I think there's a good chance that he could absolutely be on the spectrum in some way, shape or form. Unfortunately though, in high school, Cho was bullied by fellow students and a teacher even threatened to give him a bad grade if he didn't speak up in class. This only made Cho become more isolated and angrier. His admiration for the Columbine shooters, Dylan Klebold, and Eric Harris only grew, and he started to think about how he could top them. By his junior year, he refused to go to therapy. This obviously isn't good. I mean, not going to therapy is going to only allow him to dwell on these thoughts that he's having and probably continue his obsession with the Columbine shooters. Cho ended up graduating high school in 2003, and then he went to Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University that fall. Now, Virginia Tech is located in Blacksburg, Virginia. It's a large campus with over 30,000 students living there. The school's mascot, athletes, and fans are all affectionately called the Hokies. Cho ended up majoring in business information technology and took courses in computer science and management. In college, he mostly kept to himself and was viewed as a loner. He really didn't seem like he had any friends. He really made any contact with anybody. He was your very definition of like a lone wolf. Like he did not interact with hardly anybody other than the people that he had to in his classes. By his senior year, he had changed his major to English and was living in Harper Hall, suite 2121 with five roommates. Cho took a poetry class with professor Nikki Giovanni, one of the world's most prominent African-American poets. And in this class, he wrote vulgar and violent poems and was described by those around him as menacing. He would actually harass his female classmates by taking pictures of their legs and knees from under the desk. That is definitely creepy. I think that would creep out any woman in college if there was some random dude, especially this weird kid that's taking pictures of your legs. What the hell is that all about? Right. And how he wouldn't even like talk to anybody either. And, you know, he was known to just, you know, be super quiet most of the time. And he would never take initiative to, you know, try and make some new friends. Any friends that he thought he had were ones who went out of their way to approach him and trying to, to get to know him and stuff. But, you know, he was never known to, to like approach somebody and, you know, see what they were doing or, and stuff like that. Which I wonder, you know, how many people really wondered about him. Cause I think 
so often, especially in college and from my experience, like you're kind of really thinking about yourself a lot. So you're not really thinking about everybody around you, especially in your classes. And if there is that person that's kind of quiet and not really interacting with others that you probably aren't really paying too much attention to them because it seems like from all the people that did know Cho or happened to cross paths with him or even his roommate, it seems like he, you know, he just seemed like this kind of quiet, weird kid. Like there was no other inkling that there was something deeper and darker happening below the surface or in his mind. I think everybody just kind of chalked him up to his like, Oh, he's just kind of that weird kid, you know, that just doesn't really talk to anybody. And so I don't think really anybody paid it you know, special attention to him. And even Cho's parents didn't have that, you know, normal relationship that most people have with their parents, like on a communication level. And, you know, Cho, anyone in his family was his sister was the one that he opened up to the most, but his sister would often have to approach him first and engage with him. I mean, Cho was never the type of person who would go out of his way for anybody. And what was really strange about him was, one of his uh, barbers or someone who used to cut his hair would mention that when Cho was there getting his hair cut, she would often try and ask him questions or even ask something as simple as, you know, how do you want your hair cut, Cho? And he, he would just sit there and literally not even say a word, like didn't even know what to say, That's I guess. That's so weird. Yeah. He's super quiet. Man. Yeah, man. It's just really weird. Which is scary because you don't know what someone like that is thinking or, you know, you don't know. They're very unpredictable. Let's just put it that way. Like you just, there's, you can't get a read on them because they're just sitting there like a robot almost like not reacting, not being normal, not conversating with people. And it really makes me wonder more about his parents and it makes me wonder, you know, was there some tiger parenting going on? Which if you don't know what tiger parenting is, it's a form of stricter demanding parenting where basically tiger parents push and pressure their children to attain high levels of academic achievement or success or in extracurricular activities. So I wonder if his parents were tiger parents or, you know, had some elements of that uh, with how they raised Cho because it's really odd how quiet he is and just, you know, he's still managing to get into a good school. He's still managing to be a good student. Uh, But was it because it's what he wanted to do or was it because what his parents wanted to do? And again, he, you know, he has South Korean parents and I know in a lot of Asian cultures, just the relationship with, you know, parents and children is a lot different than uh, the way that we do it in the United States. It's, you know, a little bit more strict and kind of closed off and there's a lot of uh, respect uh, to be had there. So I think probably some of that plays into it too. I think there's some parenting aspects that might play into, you know, the reason why Cho is the way that he is. And, you know, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. And, you know, that doesn't obviously mean, you know, it's their fault for what happened. But I think that, you know, your environment really affects you. And if your environment is stressful and it is, you know, creates anxiety for you, I mean, we know he had social anxiety. So I just wonder if, you know, maybe his parents were, you know, not necessarily helping him as much as he should have been getting help. And I, I don't know. I just, it's just something I think about when, when we talk about Cho. It's also important to note that Cho made the decision himself to pull himself out of therapy and to get off antidepressants during that time. And, you know, I think his parents were trying to help him the best they could by getting any type of help that he needed. But at the same time, they didn't know Cho well enough that, 
you know, they, they simply just believed him that Cho was feeling better. He didn't see any need to, you know, continue getting that type of help. So they took his word for it, but little did they know like who Cho really was and what he was truly thinking about and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I think it probably was difficult for the parents to really tell what was going on with him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And I think I know that I'm not a parent yet, so I can't possibly understand what it's like to, you know, parent a child or have a child like Cho or, you know, just even a child that's obsessed with, you know, the Columbine shooters. I mean, that's a very difficult situation to deal with. And plus Cho's in college. So he's obviously over 18. And, you know, once your child's over 18, you really have no control over them. So, you know, he's allowed to go pull himself off of his meds and out of therapy at that point. So, yeah, I think a lot of the reason why Cho ends up the way that he does is purely based upon his own actions. Like it's up to him at that point, And mm-hmm. this is what he decides to do. So another interesting thing is that even his professor, Professor Giovanni, said that he had a mean streak and she even had to ask the department head to remove him from her class, saying she'd rather resign then continue teaching him. That's that's interesting that he was just like horrible to have in your class because probably because he was just freaking everybody out. I mean, he's freaking out the girls in class. He's probably freaking out everybody, including the teacher. And it got so bad that even after removing Cho from class and telling the dean's office, as well as the student affairs office and the campus police about his behavior, they basically said they couldn't do anything unless he made an explicit threat to harm himself or others which, you know, he really hadn't done yet. Cho had taken another poetry class with this professor, and she said at times he seemed insecure and lonely, but other times he was arrogant. He refused to remove his sunglasses or hat and took pictures of her during class. I think that would freak out any professor. Definitely. There's this kid in there that's got sunglasses on. He's just like snapping pictures during class. Like, wouldn't you be weirded out? If, if that was going on in your class, you'd be like, what's, what's this dude's deal? Like what's going on? And he was known if he wasn't wearing his sunglasses, it seemed like he always had a hat on at the very least. And yeah, he was known to keep his hat down super low, you know, just kind of pass his eyebrows to cover his face in a sense. Like he almost was hiding in plain sight or trying to, you know, and it's kind of ironic because knowing Cho, I'm sure he was just wanting that attention from people yet he put himself in the situation to you know completely make himself invisible to everybody you know because when he did walk into class like a normal college person you know if you see some of your classmates when you're walking in you're gonna be like hey what's up how's it going but no like cho would just walk in kind of keep his head down just walk all the way to, to the back of the classroom and just sit there in complete silence and you know, taking pictures and stuff at the same time. It's like, dude, what the fuck, you know? Yeah. It's almost as if he was feeding off this negative energy at this point. Like he's just feeding off the fear that he's generating. And obviously his, you know, obsession with the Columbine shooters is continuing to grow. So my guess is that he's sort of trying to channel, you know, Dylan Klebold or Eric Harris at, at school because, you know, they kind of had the same thing going on. People were scared of them and, you know, thought they were weird. And I think he was literally trying to sort of mimic their behavior to some extent uh, because he knew he'd get a rise out of people. And when his professor would call on Cho, he would whisper the answers hesitantly. And then when he would hand in assignments, the professor said that they seemed very angry. 
So this was in a poetry class. At one point, his professor started working with him one-on-one to help him, but she felt unsafe. At one point, she even came up with a code word that she gave to her assistant so that if she said that word, her assistant would call security. After she removed Cho from Professor Giovanni's class, this particular professor, Professor Roy, encouraged him to go to the Cook Counseling Center on campus. But according to her, she doesn't believe that Cho ever went. Another professor named Lisa Norris also told Cho to seek counseling. He took two fiction writing classes with her where he exhibited the same disturbing behaviors, including harassing female students. Professor Norris asked the associate dean, Marianne Lewis, to urge Cho to get help because he was clearly suffering from mental problems. Cho's peers also noticed many odd behaviors. Like Joel said, he wouldn't respond to greetings at all. He could be like, hey, what's up, Cho? And he would just straight up not say a word not even acknowledge you and most people would take that as an insult right yeah like like well fuck you dude right like you're not gonna acknowledge me nice yeah like he's just setting himself up for you know a, a terrible time yeah you would you would think that he had to have known that that's only gonna make people dislike him more right like, that's not gonna help your case if you're feeling insecure and lonely it doesn't help to go around and ignore people and straight up be rude to people. But that's exactly what Cho did on sign in sheets. So like in most college classes, there's, you know, instead of like roll call, they just pass around a sheet. Everybody signs it. That's there. And that's how they sort of take attendance. And instead of putting his name, Cho would write a question mark instead. And he eventually took on this nickname of question mark. And he would even introduce himself to women with this name question mark that's so weird that he he did this and he had like a little picture of one and it was like they like it was like a body of a man but then it had a question mark for a face it's very weird yeah and he even made his own facebook profile for his question mark identity and you know i think he decided to make this alter ego or alter identity for himself because deep down he knew who he truly was was somebody he was not happy with and that he felt like he had to create a whole nother identity for himself to put, you know, portray him himself in the way that he wanted to, to see himself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's spot on. I think it was absolutely an alternate identity for him to sort of use to channel this other side of him, this like dark side of himself. Like he wanted to, create this it seemed like he really tried hard to create an illusion of like i'm a scary dude like i've got a lot of scary things happening inside and and so he liked to kind of play both sides and maybe it wasn't just him consciously doing that maybe this is a a result of a mental uh, mental illness here that is actually causing him to do this because this is something that people do i mean people have multiple personality disorders and uh, all other types of, of different things that go on in the brain that cause you to do things like this. So uh, it's, it's definitely interesting that he took on the name question mark. Some other odd things that Cho would do was he would sit in a wooden rocker and just stare out the window. He'd ride his bike in circles in a parking lot. He'd listen to the same song over and over again. And he even wrote the lyrics to the song shine by collective soul on his dorm wall, which say, teach me how to speak, teach me how to share, teach me where to go. One of his roommates, Andy Koch, actually took Cho to parties in order to help him make friends. That's a nice roommate, right? Yeah. Take you to some parties, try to help you meet some people. 
One time Cho got drunk at a party and started telling Andy about his virtual girlfriends and an imaginary girlfriend named Jelly, who he described as a supermodel that lived in space, who he also called Cho Spanky. Andy also recalls a time where Cho was standing in his room doorway in the middle of the night taking pictures while he slept. If that's not a roommate horror story, I don't know what is, man. That's, dude, that's fucking weird, man. That would weird me the fuck out if that happened. I'd be like, all right, dude, what what's your deal, man? Why are you doing this? Sometimes Cho even called Andy's phone repeatedly, pretending to be his own brother named Question Mark. Once, he even called Andy over the Thanksgiving holiday to tell him he was vacationing with Vladimir Putin in North Carolina. Now, as his roommate, what would you think if you got this call from Cho? What would you, what, you'd be like, what? Like, you've got to start thinking that something is seriously wrong with Cho. Like, there's clearly something is not right uh, with his brain. I mean, there's clearly something weird going on because nobody says this shit. Right. And if anything, I would be thinking to myself, I definitely don't want to be Cho's roommate anymore. Give me the fuck out of here. You know? Yeah. I'd be like, all right, I'm going to go uh, switch my roommate because yeah. this dude is starting to get creepy. It got so bad though, that Andy and their other roommate, John stopped bringing friends to the dorm and warned their friends who are women to stay away. At one point they even looked through Cho's room but didn't find anything except a small pocket knife. So that right there tells me that they were absolutely suspicious of Cho. They, they thought he was definitely weird. He was definitely up to something and they even were willing to, you know, go into his room and search it. I mean, clearly they were thinking something's up. Like what's going on with this dude? Is he a serial killer? Like what the hell is wrong with Cho in the fall of 2005? Cho was warned twice about stalking female students. The first time he found a woman on AOL instant messenger and then got her address on campus where he went to meet her. He introduced himself as question mark, which obviously scared her so much so that she called the campus police later on. Cho told his roommate, John, that she had quote promiscuity in her eyes. The incidents didn't stop there though. The second incident also started with instant messenger. He went to the woman's dorm and wrote a Shakespeare line from Romeo and Juliet on her door. And it said, by a name, I know not how to tell who I am. My name, dear saint, is hateful to myself because it is an enemy to thee. Had I it written, I would tear the word. Which, what the fuck does that even mean? I hate Shakespeare. Yeah. Shakespeare is like one of those things I, I never liked in school. When I would do Shakespeare or Romeo and Juliet. I'd be like, why are we doing this? This is some old ancient shit. Dude, same. Like, God, it, you can't even understand it. It's like old English. You can't. It's hard to even piece it together. So of course that would freak anybody out. If somebody's coming right in Shakespeare lines on your door and this woman ended up contacting the campus police after Andy warned her that Cho had done this before and urged her to report him. He told her Cho might be schizophrenic. However, neither woman followed through with charges. And after the second warning from campus police, Cho texted Andy quote, I might as well kill myself now. Andy ended up calling Cho's father and telling the campus police about this incident. And because Annie was a good roommate and reported what Cho had told him, Cho ended up being taken to a mental health agency in Blacksburg, which was called New River Valley Community Services Board. 
and on December 5th, 2005, Cho was found to be mentally ill and in need of hospitalization and possibly an imminent danger to himself or others. But he denied any disturbing or suicidal thoughts. He also had a flat effect, meaning he spoke without vocal inflection and didn't show any emotional expressions. And unfortunately, this valuation wasn't extensive enough to provide a definitive mental health diagnosis. Virginia Special Justice Paul Barnett found that Cho was an imminent danger to himself, but recommended outpatient mental health treatment. He was ordered to follow recommended treatments and then released. And according to Virginia state law, the courts are required to notify police if someone is disqualified from purchasing a firearm by being involuntarily committed for psychiatric treatment or ruled mentally incapacitated. Under Virginia law, Cho didn't meet these criteria and the police weren't notified. It's crazy. But experts argue that under U.S. federal law, Judge Barnett's order qualified Cho as a mental defective, which should have prevented him from legally buying a firearm. And it's been reported that he attended at least one court-ordered counseling session after being released. But the mental health facility that evaluated him never followed up on treatment and claimed the responsibility ended when he was released. Plus, the court never notified the Cook Counseling Center at Virginia Tech, and the director of the center, Christopher Flynn, has even said, when a court gives a mandatory order that someone get outpatient treatment, and that order is to the individual and not an agency, the one responsible for ensuring that the mentally ill person receives help in these sort of cases is the mentally ill person, which that just does not make any sense to me at all. Also, under Virginia state law, a local community services board should have made sure Cho followed his recommended treatment, and the court should have summoned him back if he failed to comply. If he still needed help, the court should have committed him to an institution for up to 180 days, but none of this happened, and as a result, Cho fell through the cracks, which just sounds like the the story of America, man. Mental health, just not enough emphasis there, not enough follow-up there especially for somebody like Cho. So after all this happened, obviously Cho's parents were very concerned about him and they weren't getting help from the state. So Cho's mother decided to visit churches throughout Northern Virginia looking for help for her son. One of the pastors of the churches she visited said that Cho's problem needed to be solved by spiritual power. That's why she came to our church because we were helping several people like him. Members of this church also told Cho's mother that he was being tormented by a demonic power and they believed he needed deliverance, which is kind of like the Christian version of an exorcism. So that's very interesting that even his parents thought that, wow, maybe, you know, it's not mental health, maybe it's not mental illness. And they really thought that perhaps Cho was somehow possessed by demons. And I mean, who knows, maybe he was. But I feel like that is a pretty wild assumption to make. I mean, where's his pastor's diagnosis on him? You know, he just throws that out there, which I get. I mean, they're a church and stuff, so I see why they would assume that route. But seems crazy, especially, you know, with the Annalise Michelle case that we covered recently and how she was giving like clear signs that she was possibly under like a demonic possession. But Cho... I, I don't think demonic possession explains Cho's like, you know, antisocial behavior. Yeah, definitely different uh, symptoms for sure. And clearly they've already identified that there's absolutely mental illness there. He's probably on the spectrum as well. So yeah, I'm with you. I think it's kind of reckless, honestly, to go start 
hitting up churches and trying to get help that way because I think they've already established that there's definitely something mentally wrong with him. So just bringing him to a church, which he already hated, is not going to help. I feel like that's just going to enrage him more. Which, despite his mother going to different churches and speaking with different ministers, Cho never met with any of them or any members of the church, which there's no surprise there. And he ended up returning to Virginia Tech to start his senior year. During the fall and spring semesters, Cho rarely went to class and never read any books. Instead, he worked on his laptop all day. On February 9, 2007, Cho bought a 22 caliber Walter P-22 semi-automatic pistol online. He ordered the handgun through a federally licensed dealer located in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and the gun was shipped to a local pawn shop that completed Cho's background check, and his background check was clean, so he was able to legally purchase the gun. But then again, there is no, you know, mental health check there. It was just a background check, and that's not going to look for any mental health issues, unfortunately. So he got the gun. On March 12th, Cho ran in a van at the Roanoke Regional Airport. He didn't return it for nearly a month. And during this time, he made videotapes of himself talking inside the van. Then he bought a second weapon, a 9mm Glock 19 semi-automatic pistol on March 13th from Roanoke Firearms, another licensed dealer. And again, he got the gun no issue because he passed the background check, obviously, and bought it legally. Cho did leave his court-ordered mental health treatment off of the background questionnaires he filled out before buying each gun. So there's where you know, the system breaks down is that he was easily able to just completely leave that off the actual check, which I mean, even if he had put it on there, I mean, I don't know what difference it would have made, but the fact that he did straight up lie about that is uh, definitely important to note. And through eBay, Cho bought two 10 round magazines on March 22nd, and he may have purchased another one online on March 23rd. At some point, he even bought more ammunition from Dick's Sporting Goods. He also stocked up on jacketed hollow point bullets, which is a type of bullet that expands on impact, causing massive tissue damage, which is a a lethal round pretty much uh, for the sole purpose of killing a human being. That month, Cho went 40 miles away from campus to a firing range in Roanoke. He practiced shooting for an hour, and afterward, he videotaped himself inside the rented van. He also hired a dancer named Chastity Fry and met her at a hotel two hours from campus. At first, Chastity found him to be shy and harmless, so she danced for him for a little while. But when he touched her and tried to get on top of her, Chastity freaked out and pushed him away. He backed off, but she still felt very uneasy about him. Later that month, he hired another dancer from an escort service and met with her in a nearby hotel. On April 8th, Cho checked into Hampton Inn in Christiansburg, Virginia, and filmed himself again. He then put these videos along with the photographs and a PDF file onto a DVD and put the DVD into an envelope, which he planned to mail to the New York headquarters of NBC News. So we were able to actually find a clip of the videotape that he took online, and I'll go ahead and play a little bit of it now, but it is definitely hard to hear because there's a lot of background noise. I don't know if that's just from the recording that we found or if that was just how he recorded it, but it's definitely... uh, Disturbing to listen to. You have vandalized my heart, raped my soul, and torched my conscience. You thought it was one pathetic void life you were extinguishing. Thanks to you, I die, like Jesus Christ, to inspire generations of the weak and the defenseless people. You had a hundred billion chances in the ways to have avoided today, but you decided to spill my blood. 
He forced me into a corner and gave me only one option. The decision was yours. Now you have blood on your hands that will never wash off. So leading up to the day of the massacre, which was April 16th, 2007, there was a few suspicious things that happened. On April 13th, someone called in an anonymous bomb threat against three buildings on campus, Torgerson, Durham, and Whitmore Halls. The next day, students reported seeing a suspicious man in a hooded sweatshirt lingering around Norse Hall. Around this time, several of the doors were chained shut, which is pretty clear that this is Cho rolling around campus trying to remain anonymous in order to sort of plan out his attack and also tests seeing if he can keep the door shut by chaining them shut, which is very, very fucking disturbing. And just to think about that itself on Sunday, April 15th, Cho called home and talked to his family, which I assume was probably just to, you know, kind of say goodbye, I guess. But then on Monday, April 16th, Cho woke up before 5 a.m. He was in his dorm in Harper Hall. Suite 2120, room 2121. One of his roommates, Joe Ost, woke up and saw him working on his computer early in the morning. Joe had been waking up early for a few weeks, so Joe wasn't surprised to see him working on his computer. Another roommate, Karen Gruwell, had been up all night studying, and he saw Joe brushing his teeth around 5.30 a.m., wearing only boxers and a t-shirt. Joe saw Cho again between 5.30 and 6 a.m. when he came back from the bathroom and got dressed. Just before 7 o'clock, Cho was then lingering outside West Ambler Johnston Hall. Between 7 o'clock and 7.15, Emily Hilscher's boyfriend and Carl Thornhill dropped her off at her dorm. She lived in Suite 4040 of West AJ Hall. It was at that point that Cho entered the building and went to the fourth floor and started searching room by room. He eventually made it to Emily Hilscher's room, walked in and shot her. When the floor's resident advisor, Ryan C. Clark, rushed in and tried to help her, Cho shot and killed him. Emily was fatally wounded, but she lived for three hours after being shot. And in interviews later on, many of the students who were in that building during the time those first shots went off uh, you know, we're definitely really confused at first. Uh, they mentioned that there was a lot of construction going on in that building during the time. So, you know, after that first shot, everyone heard it. I mean, it was really loud and it was something very, you know, distinct and something that a lot of people did not recognize. So at first, you know, they're just thinking it was construction. But once the second shot, you know, went off, people at that point, I think, knew something was terribly wrong. And, you know, that's when the police was notified at that point. At 7.15 a.m., campus police received an emergency call reporting a shooting. They then rushed over to West AJ Hall within minutes and found the first victims. Blacksburg police were also notified and they got to work right away, establishing a perimeter and closing down Washington Street. Cho then hurried back to his own dorm for more ammunition. He also changed his bloody clothes, deleted some emails and removed his hard drive. He left the note in his room that said, you caused me to do this. Then he grabbed the envelope he had prepared to mail to NBC News and left. Heather Haw arrived at Emily's dorm between 7.30 and 8 a.m. as usual on Monday morning to walk together to chemistry class. When Heather arrived, obviously there was already police on scene and they questioned her. And she explained that Emily spent weekends with her boyfriend Carl. He went to Radford University and lived off campus. 
While questioning Heather, the police learned that Carl was a gun owner and that's who the police thought was their man. And he was the first person of interest. At 8 a.m., classes began at Virginia Tech like it was a typical Monday morning. Meanwhile, West A.J. Hall was on lockdown. Students were told about the lockdown by the third floor resident advisor. At around 8.25 a.m., the campus leadership team, president, executive vice president, and provost met in Burris Hall to discuss breaking the news of the homicide to the student body. The police had actually stopped Emily's boyfriend, Carl, off campus and took him in for questioning. At 8.52 a.m., the office of the university president, Charles Steger, was on lockdown. The leadership team was briefed by the police about the unfolding events around 9 a.m. Meanwhile, Cho left his dorm, headed to the post office, and mailed the envelope he had prepared, sending it overnight to NBC headquarters in New York. He planned for it to arrive the next day, but it was slowed down because he used the wrong zip code. It wouldn't actually make it to NBC headquarters for two days. At 9.05 a.m., Professor Jocelyn Nowak began her French class in Norris Hall, the engineering building, room 211. Cho is then seen outside Norris Hall between 9.05 and 9.15 a.m., He had actually chained the doors from the inside and put a note warning that opening the door would explode a bomb. Eventually, a faculty member found the note, removed it, and walked to the third floor of Norris Hall to report it to the school's administration. At 9.26 a.m., the police emailed all students and faculty about the shooting and told them to be careful. A message is uploaded to the emergency phone line, sent to campus phones, and posted on the university's website. At this point, the police assumed that Emily was shot by her boyfriend and that Ryan just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and was also shot by Carl. And at this point, the police believe that this was an isolated incident. So they're moving forward to file search warrants in order to go into Carl's home. At 9.30 a.m., a student told the class in room 211 about the shooting. Around this time, the lockdown at West A.J. Hall had been lifted. From the second floor of Norris Hall, Cho wandered the halls looking into classrooms. He appeared to be a lost student and no one thought anything of it. He first entered room 206 where Professor Lagonathan was teaching advanced hydrology. It was at that point that Cho shot and killed Professor Lagonathan and nine of the 13 students in the room. Two were left uninjured. One student who wasn't harmed, Eric Sheehan, said, There was blood everywhere. People in the class were passed out. I don't know, maybe from shock, from the pain... I was one of the only four that made it out of that classroom. The rest were dead or injured. Professor Christopher James Bishop was teaching German in room 207 across the hall from room 206. And within minutes, Cho bust through the door and immediately shot Professor Bishop. With a straight face and without saying a word, he then opened fire on the students. They were already on the floor trying to duck under desks. He paused to reload and within seconds he was shooting again. As quickly as he entered, Cho suddenly left. A student named Trey Perkins told everyone to stay quiet so he wouldn't come back. They then heard gunshots in the hall and a student named Derek O'Dell, who had been shot in the arm, jumped into action and started barricading the door. The students left alive and conscious joined in. And when Cho came back, he shot through the door but couldn't get in. Kevin Sterney was shot through the door twice in the thigh and Caitlin Carney was shot in the hand. Kevin was at risk of bleeding to death and made a makeshift tourniquet using an electrical cord. In room 207, Cho killed Professor Bishop and a total of four students, leaving six injured. Survivors believe a student named Pertaihi Lambantoran put himself between the shooter and a student, Guillermo Coleman, to protect him and likely saved his life. 
Just after 9.40 a.m., students in Professor Haiyan Chang's scientific computing class in room 205 heard gunshots. They immediately worked together to barricade the door with a large table and call 911. Cho tried to enter the room, but gave up and moved on. On the third floor, Professor Kevin Granada heard the noise and took his 20 students to his office and locked the door. Him and Professor Wally Grant went to investigate and were both shot on the stairwell. Professor Grant survived, but Professor Granada died. After the 911 call from the room 205, police arrived within three minutes. They discovered that all three entrances had been chained shut from the inside. It took them five minutes to assemble, clear the area, and break in. They busted through using a shotgun and listened for the gunshots, moving toward the second floor. Cho likely heard the shots as the police broke through the doors. So here's a clip of one of the first responding officers from the state police that went into this building. And this is the description of what he saw. Just that amount of people and the magnitude and the nature of how they lost their life was just overwhelming. When we entered the stairwell, there was already blood running down the steps in a constant stream. When we came to the second floor landing and there were the two deceased people there, obviously, you know, the blood or whatever was running was coming down the steps was from them. Coming down the hallway, it's just all strewn down the hallway. You know, the floor was just painted red. And at that particular point, it's breathtaking. To go from one room where you see uh, several people um, who have lost their lives in the incident, to go to another room that's twice that many people. You know, at that particular point, you, you know, you're starting to get, in a, get a sense of, you know, wow, this is, this is a tremendous incident. What drives somebody, what state of mind uh, gets them to a position to where you can carry out something like this. A custodian named Gene Cole heard there was a shooter in the building and ran to the stairwell to the second floor to check on a coworker. When he made it to the hallway, Cho stepped out of the classroom at the same moment. He then shot at Gene five times, but missed, with all five bullets whizzing past his head. Gene then ran back down the stairs and ran out of the building. Cho continued down the second floor hallway. Professor Levieu Labrescu was teaching a lecture on solid mechanics in room 204 when him and his students heard screaming and banging coming from the next room. As Cho moved through the hallway toward room 204, Professor Labrescu moved quickly to barricade the door. Without panicking, he told his students to run, and many of them jumped from the windows. Cho then shot Professor Labrescu multiple times through the door as he stood, blocking the entrance so students could escape. Cho was then able to make it into the room, where he ended up killing Professor Labrescu and one student. Down the hall in room 211, Professor Couture Nowak and her French students heard popping noises. She looked out the door and immediately slammed it shut, telling her students to get to the back of the room. When he realized what was going on, a student named Henry Lee helped his teacher barricade the door. A student named Colin Goddard called 911. But Cho eventually pushed his way through, killing Professor Kator Noak and Henry Lee. Matthew Laporte, an Air Force ROTC cadet, charged at Cho and ended up taking several bullets while shielding other students. 11 of the 16 students in the room were shot and killed. All the survivors were injured except for Clay Violand, who played dead and escaped unharmed. Colin was shot four times, one breaking his femur, 
The last shot to his right shoulder made him throw his cell phone. A student named Emily Haas picked it up and stayed on with the dispatcher. Shots continued and two bolts grazed her head while she was on the phone. As Colin lay helpless on the floor, Cho left the room and then quickly returned. At 9.51 a.m., Colin heard a final shot, Cho shooting himself in the temple. Colin texted his mom, I'm okay. Got shot. Come. Between about 9.42 and 9.51, Cho had managed to shoot 47 people, killing 30, while shooting 28 of them in the head. In just nine minutes, he had destroyed countless lives. And by the time the police made it to the second floor, Cho was already dead. One of the responding officers yelled, gunmen down, and on him they found the two guns, dozens of rounds of ammunition and multiple knives. The university sent out a second email at 9.50 a.m. that said, a gunman is loose on the campus. Stay in buildings until further notice. Stay away from all the windows. The same message was broadcast over the loudspeakers across campus. Also, right around the time that the police had found the gunman, they had actually arrested another individual who had fit the description that they were looking for of an Asian American wearing a black jacket, but he wasn't obviously Cho, so they let him go around 12.30 p.m. But for a while, it seemed like police didn't really know what they were dealing with. They didn't really know who was the shooter. They didn't know how many shooters there were until they actually found Cho uh, lying dead in the building. Around 10.16, a third campus-wide email was sent canceling classes. The university also remained in lockdown, and the email asked anyone not on campus to stay away. The police also learned that the medical helicopters that were coming to get the wounded had to be grounded due to high winds, so everyone had to be transported by ambulance. The university sent a fourth email at 10.52 a.m. that said, in addition to an earlier shooting today in West Ambler-Johnston, there has been multiple shooting with multiple victims in Norris Hall. Police have one shooter in custody, and as part of routine police procedure, they continue to search for a second shooter. The authorities held a press conference just after 12 p.m. to inform the public of the massive tragedy that had just taken place on campus that day. The media had reported on the first two deaths, but when they heard from Police Chief Wendell Flincham, announced that at least 21 people had been killed. Just, there was literal audible gas that came from the reporters. At 12.42, Charles Steger, the university president, made an announcement that police were escorting students out of buildings and counseling centers would be made available. The official death toll rose to 22 by 1.06 p.m. and to 31 by 4.30 p.m. At 9.06, the police went to Suite 2121 where Cho lived and told his roommate Karen Grewal that Cho was a shooter. The police searched his room and confiscated clothes, his computer, and other possessions. And during the search, the police also found another written bomb threat. They ended up finishing searching his room around midnight. The next day at 9.15 a.m., Tuesday, April 17th, the police confirmed the final death toll of 33 people, including Cho. Classes were canceled at Virginia Tech for the rest of the week. A convocation ceremony was held at 2 p.m. with Virginia Governor Tim Kaine, and even President George Bush and First Lady Laura Bush were in attendance. A candlelight vigil was also held that night at 8 p.m. on the university drill field. What's also weird, though, is that on Wednesday, April 18th, a SWAT team responded to a suspicious activity at Burris Hall around 8.25 a.m., but that's all we know. No further explanation was ever given. I wonder if they still thought that there was a second shooter, and maybe that's why they were you know, still kind of searching. I don't know. It's very, very weird that that happened. On Thursday, April 19th, the university announced that all students who died in the shooting would be granted degrees in their fields and that they'd be given to family members during the commencement ceremony. 
Even Governor Tim Kaine announced that Friday, April 20th, would be a statewide day of mourning going forward. Autopsies were conducted on all the shooting victims, and what that showed was absolutely jaw-dropping. The victims were collectively struck by more than 100 bullets, some of them being shot up to six times. A total of 32 people were murdered by Cho before he killed himself. 17 people were injured by gunshots, and six more were injured jumping out of windows to avoid being shot. And many of the students who were on that second floor decided not to jump out of the windows because they said that it was about 20 feet up there. So looking down, I can only imagine like kind of a terrifying fall that would be, you know, you'd probably end up breaking your legs and everything like that. So a lot of those students did not jump out of those windows because they were afraid of, you know, the injuries doing that. So they ended up just having to stay in the classroom and, you know, hide and and do whatever they could to, you know, survive, survive. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's just a unimaginable situation to be in. It's just like, you know, you're in school, you expect to be safe. The last thing you ever expect is for um, somebody to come in and start shooting at you. It's just, it's really hard to wrap your head around. I mean, it's one thing to just sit here and like talk about this and listen to this, but it's another to actually stop and really think about what that must have been like and the fear that people must have felt when Cho entered the room and just started opening fire. Like I can't even, I can't even wrap my head around. I mean, I've never, never even remotely been in a a situation as scary as that must've been. And, oh man, it it just is, it's really, truly crazy to just think about how, how horrible that must've been, especially for, you know, those that survived to, to see what they saw and to experience what they did. It's just, it's just completely, I think it's kind of beyond what words can even describe. I mean, it just seems like it's something that you can't possibly understand unless you go through something like that. What's absolutely crazy though, is that this, this remains the deadliest school shooting in us history. Even after all the other countless shootings, the Virginia tech shooting is still the, the highest death toll count out of every single one of them. In the following days, investigators found 17 empty magazines throughout the crime scene and determined that Cho had fired more than 170 times. And this was with handguns. This wasn't even with an, you know, an AR-15 or assault-style rifle. I mean, this is just with, with handguns. He was able to fire off this many rounds. The serial numbers were filed off of both of the guns, of course. And still, today, we don't really know for sure what his motive was. What was the reason that Cho did this? And there's a lot of debate about There's a lot of controversy around this. A lot of people believe that he did this because he was bullied and he finally had enough and he decided to follow in the Columbine shooters footsteps and carry out a mass shooting. Uh, other people, I mean, other people think there's other reasons for it that maybe he had a psychotic episode. Like he just completely went crazy, which is also possible. Um, some people think that there was people at Virginia tech that were making racial uh, slurs and attacks against him. But again, there's not any evidence that I've seen of that. And everybody that knew him and talked to him said they never witnessed anybody bully him or pick on him or give him a hard time really, because he just was so quiet. He didn't really talk to anybody. And if anything, I think it was probably just, he felt lonely. He was just completely alone and he just was angry about it. And 
I guess, you know, that coupled with mental illness just kind of led him to a breaking point where he just was like, enough is enough. I don't, I need to be recognized by somebody. I need to be acknowledged. And the only way he could do that, I guess, was to carry out this absolutely horrific event. Yeah. Cause I think at the end of the day, Cho was just so desperate for attention and, you know, throughout his whole life, he always wanted to be, you know, recognized and, you know, have lots of friends and have relationships with people that, you know, he failed to do so this whole time. And he didn't know how to work through those issues. And, you know, after the Columbine shooting, he identified himself, you know, with those shooters and he felt like he was the outcast and that everyone else was the problem at the end of the day to where he wanted to do something as extreme as, you know, this massacre that he did to get that satisfaction of the attention and to be, you know, remembered forever. Yeah. I, I think that's what it really comes down to is they want to be ingrained in history and be, you know, they know that this is a way to, you know, always be remembered is and it's in a horrible, horrible way, but it does work to some extent, but there were some other connections between Cho and even some of his victims. For example, he went to the same high school as two of his victims, Aaron Peterson and Rima Samaha. And him and another victim, Ross Almadine, had taken an English class together during the fall semester of his senior year. Media reports have also claimed that he was obsessed with Emily Hilsher, one of the students killed in the first shooting at West Ambler Johnson Hall. And he planned the shooting because she rejected him. But the police have never found a connection between Cho and Emily, and they've dismissed this theory as a motive. In a video, Cho called Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold martyrs, and police found writings in his room expressing hatred toward rich kids, deceitful charlatans, and debauchery. Along with a note that said, you caused me to do this. Cho had actually been prescribed Prozac, an antidepressant that has been theorized to cause suicidal actions. But the autopsy showed that Cho hadn't taken any psychiatric or illegal drugs before the shooting. And it showed no gross brain function abnormalities that could explain his violent actions. When his body was found, Cho had the name Ishmael written on his arm in red ink. He used the same alter ego on the package he sent to NBC News. Ishmael could refer to the character in Moby Dick, the son of Abraham, according to religious texts, or something else. It's derived from a Hebrew name that means God will hear. The New York headquarters of NBC News received the envelope from Cho two days after the shooting on April 18th. It contained a DVD with 25 minutes of video, 43 photographs, and a PDF that was 23 pages long. The timestamp on the DVD indicated that Cho may have added some of the information between shootings. After notifying the police, NBC made the controversial decision to release some of this information to the public. At the time, they released two minutes of video, seven photos, and five pages from the PDF. Those directly affected by the shooting, including students, faculty, and friends, and family of the victims, were horrified that this information was broadcast on the news. Not only were they upset to see the murderer on TV, but they also believed it glorified Cho's actions and increased the chances of similar shootings. The police didn't find this information to help understand Cho or why he committed these crimes and many prominent mental health professionals weighed in. Dr. Carol Lieberman, a psychiatrist at the University of California Neuropsychiatric Institute, said, The video should not have been aired, nor re-aired, without a psychiatrist making commentary along the way. 
not just a news anchor or reporter. A psychiatrist takes away the glamour for a would-be copycat killer. It would also be more sensitive to the families who have lost loved ones to have them analyzed on air by a professional. I 100% agree with that. I think it's ridiculous that the media sometimes just throw shit out there to try and, you know, get that shock value and, you know, pull the viewers in. Dr. Michael Wellner, the chairman of the forensic panel and associate professor of psychiatry at New York University School of Medicine said, this is a PR tape of him trying to turn himself into a Quentin Tarantino character. This is precisely why this should not be released. Parents, you should cut the pictures out of the newspaper. Do not let your children see it. Take them out of the room when these videos are shown because he's paranoid and his agenda of blaming the rest of the world is unedited. Virginia Governor Tim Kaine appointed a panel to investigate the shooting. Homeland Security Secretary Tom Ridge was brought into the investigation to review Cho's medical history and the police response to the shooting and the same company that investigated after Columbine was hired to analyze the police response as well. The final report was damning to Virginia Tech's mental health system and staff, members of the faculty and administrators, and to Virginia's mental health laws and gun laws. The panel found that the university failed to address serious warning signs and that their mental health system failed for lack of resources, incorrect interpretation of privacy laws, and passivity. It also found that the state's mental health laws and services are flawed and inadequate and that under federal law, Cho should have been prevented from buying firearms. The panel criticized Virginia's insufficient laws around background checks and gun purchases as well. After the Columbine shooting, the U.S. Secret Service conducted a study to determine the common traits, behaviors, and interests of school shooters, and Cho fit this profile to a T. After the shooting, the Cho family issued a letter of apology and then went into hiding for months. They've never fully returned to any semblance of normal life. They have no contact with the outside world, not even their family in South Korea, except for an FBI agent and their lawyer. Wow, that's that's wild, man. They literally had to go into high. I mean, they can't even show their faces ever again, pretty much, because I'm sure they just get death threats. And I mean, I'm sure it must be crazy for them. And I guess it's good that they gave an apology. But at the end of the day, I mean, I don't even know how you go on with life as a parent of, of one of these mass shooters. It's just, it's got to be so hard. But at the end of the day, the most important thing to me about these stories is the fact that we remember those who lost their lives in these tragic events. And because that there were so many victims, I can't possibly go through every single one and, and give you all the details of their lives and who they were. But what I will do is I will read every single name and I will give a moment of silence for them. The victims included Ross Almadine, Christopher Bishop, Brian Blum, Ryan Clark, Austin Cloyd, Jocelyn Couture Nowak, Kevin Granada, Matthew Gwaltney, Caitlin Hammerin, Jeremy Herbstritt, 
Rachel Hill, Emily Hilscher, Jarrett Lane, Matthew Laporti, Henry Lee, Lavu Labrescu, G.V. Lagonathan, Pertai Lombantarin, Lauren McCain, Daniel O'Neill, Juan Ortiz, Manel Pancall, Daniel Cueva, Aaron Peterson, Michael Pole Jr., Julia Pridey, Mary Reed, Rima Samaha, Walid Shalin, Leslie Sherman, Maxine Turner, and Nicole White. That is so many names. I can't even, it's just hard to wrap your head around that all these people lost their lives because of this individual. But hopefully they will never be forgotten and hopefully there's something that we can take from this and move forward with and hopefully prevent something like this from happening again, even though it has happened again and again and again. It's just like, it's starting to feel like, what do we do? Cause this has just got to stop. We can't keep having these mass school shootings. It's just, it's got to stop. But as always, my thoughts are with those that were affected by this, all those that were injured. I mean, the amount of people that were affected by this tragic event is unbelievable. And I'm sure there's people dealing with the pain to this day and the grief. So with that being said, we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. I know this was a, a dark one, but it's one that we can't can't forget about. We can't let it just get lost in history. We can't let these individuals who lost their lives be forgotten, you know, like just speaking their name, just allowing their name to be heard by all of you out there listening to this podcast and you know, out there on the internet, I think it's important that we see their faces and, you know, remember that they were human beings on this planet living their lives like all the rest of us and that all their lives were cut short due to this one individual. Because again, this could have happened to any of us. I mean, any, all of us have been to school, all of us have been to college, all of us go out in public. There's always a chance that something like this could happen to any one of us. So, you know, I would hope somebody would do the same for me if I were in one of these events. So, That's what I try to do, and hopefully you understand what my intention is with this. But until next time, lights out, everybody.